thankful for this church. I'm thankful that I can look back on the back wall there and see Miss Nancy, and uh, she's faithful to come and be here and worship with us, and uh, uh, she is a treasure of our church. And um, I told Nancy uh, a little bit ago, I said, just imagine as you look out over this congregation that it's full of people. And um, uh, that, that reminds me, uh, many of you will remember that uh, uh, earlier in the spring, I planted two fig trees. Uh, one of those fig trees is called Little Miss Figgy Fig. Uh, and it's a dwarf fig. And uh, Miss Figgy has been outdoing the other regular fig tree that's supposed to get up to 15 or 16 feet tall. Miss Figgy is already up five feet or more. And as I went out and looked at Miss Figgy uh, this last week, I discovered that she has, I'm calling her a she, I don't know, <laughs> that, that she has 11 baby figs on her here in September, you know. Now, I know that um, she's not going to have time to produce those to where they'll be ripe enough that my wife can make some preserves. But it gives me hope for the future. It gives me hope that there's going to be a guarantee that next year we're going to have figs. And so it gives me hope also to know that God is going to be with our church and uh, bring people and fill these pews. And so we look forward to that time and that day and, and uh, may God bless you. So. Uh, today, I'm, uh, you know, you talk about getting into deep water, and uh, Isaiah chapter 40 is deep water. We're going to take the plunge today once again, uh, and we're going to read this morning Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 14. So, would you stand with me? Uh, you stand while I sit. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 49 through 14. <clears throat> o Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him? 
and taught him in the path of justice, who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. May the Lord add his blessing to the leading of, reading of his word. And I'm going to uh, ask Brother Dennis, if he will, to lead us in uh, a word of prayer now. Amen. You may be seated. I said earlier that this was getting into deep water uh, when you're preaching from Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, but uh, it's giving us a revelation of our God and who he is and what he is. And I pray that God will bless us. And uh, I know that my limited knowledge and ability, there's no way that I can adequately explain and divide the word that we're going to be looking at today. In fact, this week as I uh, prepared this, I was reminded of... the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And in the very first beginning of that book, he quotes the introduction, the introduction to a sermon by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher and pastor in London, England. And uh, he was grew up in the country section of England. But uh, when he was 18 years old, he became the pastor of a little country church. But his fame spread, and the big Baptist church in London, the New Park Street Baptist Church, heard about this young preacher, and uh, they were in desperate straits. Uh, their building was almost empty every Sunday. And so they invited him to come up and preach. And when he was 20 years old, he preached a sermon on the subject of God. And uh, it was on uh, January the 7th, 1855. And... Um, I want to read that introduction to his sermon for you today just to give you an indication of what God can do in the life of one young man. And, and, and by the way, uh, just to explain, Charles Spurgeon's father was a preacher, a pastor, but they were very poor. They had several children, and so 
Charles was sent off to his grandparents' home, and he most of his growing up years was spent in his grandparents' home. And his grandfather had a very good library. And uh, so Charles Spurgeon read through the books in his grandpa's library, and he just soaked it in. And uh, it blessed him to be very knowledgeable in the Bible and the Word of God. So let me read this introduction. This is Charles Spurgeon speaking. It has been said that the proper study of mankind is man. I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we may grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to the master science, finding that our plumbing cannot sound its depth, our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's coat. And with solemn exclamation, I am out but of yesterday, and I know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expounding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial, as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you 
this morning. And so what an amazing thing that a young 20-year-old in the biggest, well, a large church in, in London could come. And, and, and by the way, just so you'll know, uh, there was, were no great expectations when they invited him. He preached in the Sunday morning service. And they heard the message and they were so blessed by it that they went out and spread the word. And by that evening, that New Park Street Baptist Church was filled with people. They called him as their pastor and he was there for many years and led many souls to Christ and was faithful in preaching the word. And uh, so what God can do in the life of a young person and... Um, uh, in that vein, I, I would like to share another story. I, I may run out of time this morning, but um, uh, we were in Taiwan for many years, and uh, we lived in the central city, Taijong, Taiwan city of Taichung. Um, and we live, were living out in, well, the north uh, section of the city. And we had in one of our Taipei churches a young student. His Chinese name was Kong Lai Chang. His English name was Paul Kong. And uh, Paul had uh, completed high school. He had finished his four years of college. And then he was drafted into the military. He had to do his mandatory military service. And so during that two-year period, he was stationed for about a year, 30 minutes north of where we lived. And uh, so he had one day a week off. And uh, every week on his day off, he came to our house. He went into my study, and he started through the books in my library. And before his year was up, Paul Kong had devoured and digested and kept put to memory what was in those books. Now, the rest of the story is that Paul Kong later came to the United States, got his Ph.D. degree, went back to Taiwan, and for a few years was president of the China Evangelical Seminary in the capital city of Taipei. But then he resigned that position, and believe it or not, Taiwan has a Christian television station. And he went on there. And, and probably one of the things you'd be interested in about, about Paul when he would come to visit us, he was always barefoot. I mean, you would think he was just a country hick. But uh, he knew the word. He knew the Lord. And um, so he, even to this day, every day, on Good TV in Taiwan, Paul Kong is preaching and teaching the Word of God. 
And so that's what God can do in the life of a young person. And uh, who knows the ones that God is setting aside of those that come to our church and those that we know. Well, I didn't mean to take up that much time for that, but um, we're going to take our plunge today into Isaiah chapter 40. And the subject, as you probably already know, is Behold Your God. Last week, the sermon was from the verses 1 through 9, God's eternal word of comfort. And uh, verse 1 started out, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. And as young Spurgeon made clear, nothing can give comfort to a Christian like a deeper knowledge of God. And so point number one, we're going to look at in verse 9, an invitation to behold your God. Verse 9 says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And so what the message is, get up on the high mountain, declare the word, spread the news about God and his goodness and his greatness. You who bring good good tidings, get up into the high mountain. Focus on God. Focus on his goodness. Focus on his greatness. Focus on his love and his salvation that he wants to give to us. He said, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So many people have their focus on things in the world accomplishing goals in this world, uh, making money, getting rich, um, getting ahead, making a reputation, becoming famous, all of these things. But we need to change our focus today. We need to cry out from the mountaintop, change the focus of the cities of America. We have been seeing the tragedies that has been taking place in the cities of America And the only thing that's going to change is when America repents and we change our focus from the things of this earth and of this world and we change our focus to God and we change our message. Uh, We need to change the message to the message of the word of God, that God's word is true and faithful, that God loves the world, that God has sent his son Jesus Christ to come into the world to die for the world, that the world through him might be saved. And we need to spread the word. And uh, there's that Christmas song, uh, Tell It on the Mountain. Um, We need to get up on top of the mountain and shout the good news about Jesus. And then he says in verse 10, Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. So, behold the returning Lord. Not just behold the God, but behold the returning Lord. The double behold here in verse 10 uh, uses the double behold to express the need of the listener to pay attention. To get our focus right. And uh, we need to, uh, because Judah, 
the people of Judah had largely forsaken God. As Isaiah and Joel and uh, uh, the other prophets had come to preach to them and later Jeremiah. And uh, the people had turned their focus away from God. They were thinking that they were going to be safe and all right uh, without having their hearts changed and obeying the, the, the law of God and the commandments of God. And so here in America, the thing that's going to change us and when we get a new focus, a focus on God, a focus on his word and his truth. I don't know if any of you did, but yesterday, uh, Franklin Graham uh, led in a uh, prayer walk in Washington, D.C., from the Jefferson Memorial to the Capitol building. And uh, we watched some of it, and uh, it was a blessing to see that there are people who have their hearts broken for the sins of America and, and to hear them praying prayers that God would bring America back, the, the, the America that God placed here for a purpose. And so we need the message of salvation, the message of the gospel, the message of repentance. Behold the, the returning Lord. The Lord shall come for Judah. Judah was still waiting for their Messiah to come. And even today they are still waiting, but God's word is faithful. We know that God is going to come. And that the Messiah of the Jews is going to come. That there is going to come a day when the Jews all around the world will accept and believe in Jesus Christ, the one whom they pierced. And they will be saved by God's marvelous grace. So they were still waiting for their Messiah. And God is still protecting and providing for Judah today. That little tiny nation of Israel, God has been with them. He was with them in their return from exile. Isaiah prophesied it. Jeremiah prophesied it, that they were going to be defeated and carried into captivity by the Babylonians. And that all came to pass, but God promised to bring them back from exile after 70 years, and that all came to pass. So God was faithful. The Lord shall come. And uh, God is still blessing. Now, uh, I've said this many times, um, uh, that I believe one of the reasons that God has blessed America is because America is the one nation in the world that has been a friend to Israel, to God's chosen people. And I believe that uh, that is one of the reasons, and, and I, I know that our president is not perfect, but one of the things that uh, we can say is that uh, he promised that he would move the American embassy to Jerusalem, and he did it. And uh, he is uh, still today uh, doing things that will honor and that will bless the nation of Israel. And so God has promised to protect and be with his people. And uh, 
One of the ways that he is, we, we can see how God has done this is the wars that modern Israel has fought. Now, uh, in 1948, there was the War of Independence. Uh, the, I can't remember the exact date, May of 1948, uh, uh, the nation of Israel was declared to be a nation. And uh, the surrounding Arab countries overwhelmingly had uh, military superiority uh, and uh, numbers. And yet God was with them, God blessed them, and God helped them to defeat all of the Arab armies and establish the nation of Israel that still stands today. In 1956, there was the Sinai campaign where uh, they fought once again and defeated the enemy. And in 1967, there was the Six-Day War, which miraculously, tiny Israel defeated the armies of Syria, the armies of Lebanon, the armies of Egypt, and perhaps some others as well. And uh, so God was with them and then... Next, there was the 1973 Yom Kippur War, when the Arabs coming from Egypt and, and Syria uh, attacked simultaneously on the Day of Atonement, and uh, they thought that they were going to catch Israel napping, unaware, unprepared, but God blessed once again. So that's my opinion is that God is blessing Israel. God is still coming to their aid. And uh, there are going to be some tough times. And the, these wars that I've mentioned are just a few. There are many other battles that they have fought down through the years. Well, how does that apply to us today? Well, I believe that we need to be looking for his coming as well. And uh, you've heard me tell this many times from this pulpit that uh, when I, I was saved when I was a boy of 10, one of the things that caused me to be convicted and to be drawn to the Savior was the fact that my uncle, my grandpa, my other preachers that preached sermons about the second coming of Jesus Christ and that we need to be prepared and that we need to be ready. And I can remember in, uh, probably in that old 1934 Chevrolet as we would drive away from church and I would be sitting by the window and look out and look up into the sky and think to myself that if Jesus came before I was saved, I would die and go to hell. And uh, that was one of the primary things that motivated me one day to fall on my face before God and out there in the middle of the pasture and the mesquite trees and the cactus plants and, and just call on him to, to save my soul. And so you and I, we need to understand and be looking for it. There's so many scriptures uh, uh, that give us this hope. For instance, Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God in our Savior Jesus Christ. And then again, Acts 1.10 and 11. 
As he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so Jesus is coming again. I believe that with all of my heart. And we need to be looking up and being prepared. But verse 10 also says he will come in power. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Both of these parallel phrases. The, the Lord shall come with a strong hand. That's one. And his arm shall rule for him. Both of these emphasize the power with which God will come. And I could not help but uh, think of the scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, which says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed. He comes to reward his faithful people. Verse 10, his reward is with him. The Lord is coming, and his reward is with him. And I thought of Revelation 22 and 12. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And then 1 Peter 5 and 4, there's just multitudes of scriptures. There's just a couple that I thought of. When the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And so our God is coming. He's coming in power. He's coming to reward his children. But second, next the verse 11 says, Behold, our God is like a shepherd. He will feed his flock like a shepherd, verse 11 says. And this is another aspect of our God to behold his loving care as a shepherd. The first thing a shepherd must do for his sheep is to feed them. And the Lord feeds us like a shepherd feeds his flock. And as a God-called preacher and pastor and Brother Robert and Brother Stephen and Brother Dennis as well, uh, has God and his word and his testimony in our hearts. And uh, we love to share that news that God is our shepherd and we have that shepherd's heart as well. And I pray that we all will. Um, Feed our sheep. And uh, this is the reason that we believe, I believe, and I know Brother Robert agrees with me, and 
based on what I've heard, Brother Stephen as well, believe in teaching and preaching the word expositorily. In other words, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word, so that we can know what God has said. We need to feed the sheep. And uh, sheep must be directed to the good pasture when they have stripped the grass bare. We need as much carefully directed feeding as sheep. Let me quote Charles Spurgeon again. He said, no creature has less power to take care of itself than the sheep. Even the tiny ant with its foresight can provide for the evil day. But the poor creature must be tended by men, the poor creature being the sheep, the poor creature must be tended by men or else perish. So God loves to identify himself as a shepherd. Many of the greatest men of the Bible were shepherds. And their character as shepherds points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And just a few of them I could name. Uh, Abel is a picture of Jesus the sacrificed shepherd. Jacob is a picture of Jesus, the working shepherd. Joseph is a picture of Jesus, the persecuted and exalted shepherd. Moses is a picture of Jesus, the calling out from Egypt shepherd. And David is a picture of Jesus, the shepherd king. And so, thank God for our Great shepherd. Verse 11 says, He will gather the lambs with his arms. And you know, we're his sheep, but, but in, in our congregations and in our families, we have the little lambs. The ones that are still weak, uh, they still need help, they still need guidance, they still need teaching. And so... Um, Verse 11 says, he will gather the lambs with his arm. Our Lord shows special care for the lambs. And uh, this just reminded me of uh, John 21. You remember when Jesus uh, came and appeared to his disciples there, and then he um, asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And uh, the first time uh, Peter said, you know I love you. And uh, Jesus said, feed my lambs. The next two times he said, feed my sheep. But he started out with the little lambs. And uh, so, thankfully, we as families, fathers and mothers, grandfathers and grandmothers, great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers, we have a big job. We have a great responsibility to the little lambs in our family, to teach them, to guide them, to help them to know the Lord, the little lambs. And he says here, he will carry them in his bosom. He doesn't throw the weak lambs over his shoulder as a shepherd might carry a sheep. Instead, he lovingly cradles the 
little lamb in his bosom, close to his heart. That is both a safe place and a tender, loving place. Quoting from Spurgeon again, this is Spurgeon's day. Spurgeon said, to carry is kindness, but to carry in the bosom is loving kindness. The shoulders are for power and the back for force, but the bosom is the seat of love. And then he goes on to say, and gently lead those who are with young. And so mothers who are with young, expecting babies or have small children, they hold a special place in our hearts here at this church. Um, And uh, we need to gently lead those who are with young. The shepherd carries a rod and a staff and knows how to use them, but he also knows how to gently lead those who are with young. He knows when to be gentle and when more severe guidance should be used. And Jesus in the Bible is given three great titles regarding his work as a shepherd. In John chapter 10, we find Jesus the good shepherd. He is good in his care and his sacrifice for the flock. And number two, Jesus the great shepherd. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, he is great in his glorious triumph over the enemy. And so Jesus is our great shepherd. He has won the victory for us, and we, our victory, we have won the victory because of our faith in him. And then number three, Jesus is the chief shepherd. Again, 1 Peter 5 and 4. He is the chief over all his people in his return. At his return, Jesus will exercise another aspect of his role as a shepherd. He will divide the sheep from the goats. And he will mete out judgment because he is the chief shepherd. And point number four from verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? And so, point number four, behold the God over all creation. He said, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? This is another aspect of our God to behold is his authority over all creation. Our God is so great and so dominant over all creation that he has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and has measured heaven with a span. Now, we understand that this is an example of of what we call an anthropomorphism. That's one of those tongue-twisting words. But it simply means speaking of God in human terms. We, we all know that God is a spirit. And uh, I'm just reiterating what Stephen has taught us in, in Sunday school. But um, 
the, the Bible, since God is infinite in all of his attributes, and the Bible says God is a spirit, so he doesn't have a physical body like us. He doesn't have hands and feet and so forth. Uh, but we speak of God in human terms so we and the world can partially understand who he is and what he does. God is not a being with the body of a giant so large that all the waters of the earth could be cupped in his hand or so large that the universe could be measured by the span of his hand. The Bible tells us that God is spirit. So he does not have a body as we know it, but we understand exactly what the Lord tells us through the prophet Isaiah. God is so great, so dominant over all creation that we should stand in awe of his power and glory. And verse 12 goes on to say, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. It isn't just about size, it's about knowledge. It's about wisdom and intelligence. God is so great in his wisdom and intelligence that he calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Now, in our kitchen, we've got this electronic scale it's uh, for weighing letters and so forth. I thought about bringing it up here and bring some dust and see if we could make it uh, register on the scale. But to think about it, that God knows the dust of the whole earth and the whole universe. He calculated the dust of earth in a measure. God knows exactly how many grains of dust there are on the earth. And um, it doesn't bother him as much as it bothers my wife. Even if a person knew the number of hairs on their head, as God knows, according to Luke 12, 7, they could never calculate the dust in their own house, much less the dust of the earth. And to take it even further, God knows how heavy the mountains are. Can you imagine that? We think of the great mountain ranges on the earth, the Himalayas, the Rocky Mountains, the Appalachians, and many others. And God knows how heavy the mountains are. He weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. And then number five, last point. Behold the God of all wisdom. Verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? So the question is, no one, of course. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord as or as his counselor has taught him. So this is another aspect of God to behold in his great, is his great wisdom. He has the raw intelligence 
to know how much dust there is in the earth and how heavy the mountains and the hills are. But more than that, God has the wisdom to use that knowledge. God is so wise that no one has directed the spirit of the Lord. No one as his counselor has taught him. No, God, his knowledge and his wisdom is so infinite. There's no one on the face of this earth that can even begin to compare. I, we, we've had him here, here at our church. He's uh, not able to, to be out anymore. Dr. Philip Ray Bryan was my roommate in college and uh, later went to the University of Oklahoma and then got a Ph.D. degree from Baylor and so forth and was uh, dean of our seminary, professor of uh, Greek and theology and so forth. Um, but uh, one time, in, and we're, we're close friends, unfortunately, he's had to move to Ohio to live with his son, but he was talking about the student, all the students he'd had, the two that had the most, the greatest, the highest raw intelligence. But the smartest human being that ever lived, just a drop in the bucket compared to God. And then he says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? In Romans eleven thirty four, Paul quotes this verse, which is from the Septuagint. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? With whom did he take counsel? God needs no counsel, no instruction, no teacher, and no one to show him the way of understanding. God is our great God. And uh, the next time we're, I'm preaching, we'll be preaching further from Isaiah chapter 40. The question that we come today, do we believe in him, this great God? Have we committed our hearts and our lives to him? Have we believed in him as our personal savior? Have we received Jesus Christ into our hearts because the Apostle Paul made it clear that the heart of all of the wisdom and knowledge and power of God was Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And so if you, wherever you are today, have never received Jesus as your personal Savior, perhaps this is the day, this is the time. Perhaps there's some young people, young person out there listening and worshiping with us. And you would today just ask Jesus to come into your heart. Say, Jesus, I understand and know that I'm a sinner, that I'm lost, and that I need to believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins. Jesus, will you forgive me? Will you save me? In Jesus' name, amen. And God will Hear your prayer. And I pray that today there will be many who will come to know the Lord as their Savior.
Brother Dennis is going to come now. What number are we going to sing? 577. 577. And uh, I'm going to get out of Dennis' way and let him come and